Today we're going to talk about aliens. Well, let me say that I want to believe, right? When I see this stuff, I'm excited. I go, oh, please, please, please let it be alien. Flat Earth believers. I don't think that the Earth is flat or NASA didn't land on the moon comes from a place of skepticism and being open-minded, though. I think it comes from a place of stubbornness. Simulation theory. I can write a simulation, and I do often for my research, of a universe with different laws of physics to see how it would play out. With physicist Dr. Whiteson. Daniel Whiteson has been gracious enough to join us on the show today. He's a professor of physics and astronomy uh, at the University of Irvine. He also holds a Ph.D. in physics from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he has a book called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe, available at all fine bookstores. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk to you. Same here. It's a, it's a really interesting book. I think it's a very unique way of explaining physics uh, by way of using illustrations. What inspired you to write the book? Well, it's actually the second book that I've written together with my collaborator and old friend, Jorge Cham. He's sort of famous in academia because he's the mind behind PhD Comics, a comic strip that pokes fun at graduate student life and life in academia. And he's got this great gift at uh, drawing funny scenes, but also at communicating science in an easy, accessible way. And about 15 years ago now, I had this desire to try to communicate science uh, to the general public in a way that wasn't like intimidating. I wanted to show people that it was fun and accessible. And I thought one way to do that might be to use comics. And I had seen a technical comic that was written about how the Chrome browser was built. And it was really well done. And I thought, wow, if they can make writing a browser seem fun and interesting, then they can, you can do it for anything. So I reached out to uh, Jorge, who at the time was, you know, I didn't know him at all. He was just this internet celebrity. And I emailed him cold and I said, hey, do you want to collaborate on a physics project explaining dark matter using cartoons? And, you know, just like an email off into the void, never expected to hear back. But he wrote me back and said, sure. And so we started working together and put together a video here and there. And then in 2017, we wrote our first book, which is called We Have No Idea. And like the book we're talking about today, Frequently Asked Questions, it's uh, sort of accessible, it's lighthearted, there's lots of dad jokes in there. But there's also an interplay because you have text that explains the physics and then cartoons that both illustrate what's going on and also make jokes. And that general idea is put people at ease. You open up a physics book and you see cartoons in it, you feel like, oh, I'm going to get this. This isn't beyond me. This Instead of seeing equations, what you see are fun doodles. So it's sort of an attempt to put somebody in a relaxed mode where they feel comfortable like they're going to be able to understand it. Then, of course, we try to write the book in a way that's very accessible and, and lighthearted. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is, who's a book written for? It's written for everybody, ages 9 to 99. And it's written for anybody who is curious about the universe. You know, if you've ever wondered how big is the universe or where did the universe come from or how is the universe going to end or what's everything made out of, you know, or like how many dimensions are there or are there aliens? Just, you know, the simplest, deepest, oldest questions people have been asking, then you're the right person for this kind of book because that's the scale of the questions that we try to tackle. And of course, we don't pretend to know all the answers. What we do instead is tell you what we do know, what science has figured out. 
and then also give you an introduction to sort of the cutting edge ideas that people are exploring, most of which will turn out in, you know, in the um, context of history to be ridiculous and wrong, but they're sort of, you know, what scientists are thinking about right now. Because we think that uh, everybody basically is the scientist, as long as you're thinking about these questions and curious about the universe. So everybody deserves to know what science is up to and what we do and do not understand. Daniel, do you hire someone for the illustrations or is Jorge part of that? No, the illustrations are all Jorge. Um, our writing process works like I start writing drafts and outlines and he gives notes and edits and, uh, and changes things up because he's, he's really good at understanding how to communicate a tricky technical topic uh, to the general public. Um, so, you know, I'm the expert on the topic. It's sometimes harder for me to like step aside and remember what was complicated, what was weird about something. So we work on the structure together and then I write the, the text and then he comes along and uh, makes it really fun and uh, adds a bunch of illustrations. So all the artwork is him. I, I don't have the artistic talent at all. What's great about this book is it makes physics accessible to everyone, but some might say physics shouldn't be accessible to everyone. What do you think about that? Should physics be accessible to everybody? Absolutely. I mean, I think that physics, everybody is doing physics. I mean, I think everybody wants to know what is the context of our life here in the universe? You know, why are we here and how should we live? And, uh, you know, physics can't tell you how to treat people, but it can provide important context for human life. You know, just like the way physics showed us that the, that the Earth was not the center of the universe or even our solar system and that we are one of billions and trillions of planets around trillions of stars. It tells you something about where we stand in the universe. And I think that really informs how to live and why to live um, and how people should behave. So I think that physics has a huge role to play for everybody. Uh, I also think that everybody's curious about these things. I don't think I'm the only person in the world who wants to understand, like, what is the smallest particle? Um, and finally, physics is paid for by everybody, right? It's government-funded. We are sp out there spending taxpayer dollars on our particle accelerators. So everybody, everybody deserves to know what we're up to. I know you're a particle physicist. What does the arrangement of particles have to do with what things become and how they, how they work in, in the real world? Yeah, it's amazing. It turns out the arrangement of particles is everything. Like the difference between you and a blob of ice cream or lava or hamster of the same mass is not the particles that make you up. Like you are made up of exactly the same particles as a, as a blob of ice cream or, a, you know, a block of lava of the same mass, exactly the same particles in the same quantity. The only thing that's different between you and those other things are how those particles are put together. It's like if you build you know, a Lego dinosaur and you build a Lego pirate. What's the difference? They're both made out of Legos, maybe even exactly the same pieces, but they're put together in a different way. So one of them becomes a dinosaur. The other one becomes a pirate. So just like that, everything that you're, you and I are made out of are made of atoms. And those atoms you know, are made of protons and neutrons at their center and electrons around them. And those protons and neutrons are also just made of quarks. But even just think about the protons, neutrons, and electrons. Everything around us is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons arranged in a different way. You add another proton, you get helium. You add another one, you, know, you get another element. So it's fascinating because you have this incredible complexity of things in the world, right? 
ice cream and lava and blueberries and stars and ocean water and all this incredible stuff. But that complexity doesn't come from an inherent complexity in the nature of the stuff in the universe, but how it's put together. And that's where all this complexity arises. And to me, that's a really deep realization about the very nature of the universe we find ourselves in and of ourselves, right? What makes you, you is not what you were made out of, but how you were put together. The way you explained it kind of reminds me of pixels on a, on a screen where each pixel could be a different color and based on a different colors, they could be different things. Um, and that dovetails into my next question, which is what do you mm -hmm. think about the idea that we live in a simulation? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you put any credence behind that or do you think it's something that we should even consider? I think it's a wonderful idea from a philosophical point of view because it makes us ask the question like, uh, you know, what is a simulation? How is it different from reality? I like the flip side of it, in fact, you know, to say, well, if we write a simulation and we simulate people inside that simulation, could those people think that they are real? That's sort of the, the consequence of it, uh, the way I like to think about it. So I think it's a wonderful philosophical question because it makes us ask, you know, what does it mean to be real and how would we know and all of that stuff? So really interesting questions. But, you know, if I had to bet whether we were actually in a simulation, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say we have no idea. And there's really very little way to ever discover it. Um, because, you know, when you write a simulation, the rules of the universe you're simulating don't have to have any relationship with the universe in which the simulation is written. Like I can write a simulation, and I do often for my research, of a universe with different laws of physics to see how it would play out, sometimes drastically, sometimes drastically different, sometimes ignoring quantum mechanics, right, or ignoring general relativity, turning on and off huge things about the universe. And that, that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, that, that in our universe general relativity gets turned off. So the laws of physics in the simulated universe don't tell you anything about the nature of the meta-universe in which the simulation lies. So you can't really learn anything about if we are in a simulation, you can't learn anything about the universe on the outside in which we are sitting from studying the nature of this universe, uh, which means I think it's almost hopeless unless somebody turns off the universe or sends us a message from the programmers, unless they decide to intercede. I don't really see how we could ever know uh, concretely that we actually are in a simulated universe. Yeah, I mean, uh, w one experiment in physics that's... Um has always intrigued me as a double slit experiment where mm. a particle changes based on whether you measure it or not. Do you think there's some sort of interplay between ourselves and these particles? You know, it's not a question we have an answer to, unfortunately. And it's sort of amazing that a hundred years after we've established quantum mechanics, we still don't really understand this basic thing of what happens to particles when we look at them. You know, uh, the sort of standard answer we have for how this works really makes no sense at all. Standard answer is that there are rules for quantum particles, and those quantum particles can do things like have a probability to be two places at once, you know, have a chance to go through two slits when you know you can only go through one, but you can have a chance to go through one slit or the other. Quantum particles can do that. Classical things like me and you and experiments and all of our experiences can't do that, right? You don't flip a coin and get both heads and tails, right? You don't roll a die and get two different answers. You just get one. So the sort of standard answer, what sometimes the philosophers call the Copenhagen interpretation, is that when a classical object like me and you that doesn't follow quantum rules interacts with a quantum object, 
it forces it into like a classical situation. It collapses its wave function um, and makes it pick one or the other. That doesn't really make any sense uh, for lots of reasons. Like number one, the mathematics of quantum mechanics says that shouldn't happen. So it just like doesn't actually hold together at all. Uh, but most importantly, it doesn't really even mean anything. Like how do you define what a classical object is? If I'm a classical object and I stick my finger out to like touch an electron to you know, quantum object to make it, to measure it. Well, the tip of my finger is just made out of electrons, which are quantum objects. So when did it turn into a classical object? You know, how many electrons do you have to poke at something before this sort of gets invoked? So we have no idea how that happens, if it's connected to being a person or, you know, what measurement means and why quantum particles suddenly collapse and, and look like classical particles. We really, just really don't know. And the amazing thing is we have like all these different ideas of how it might work, some of which involve the universe simultaneously branching into lots of different universes in which, you know, in each universe, a different thing happens. Crazy ideas. And we don't know what the truth is. And I think in a few hundred years, people are going to look back at this period in history and laugh at all of our ideas. I mean, not looking down at us, but just the same way we look at the writing of the Greeks who were wondering like, you know, how do, what are the stars and what are the elements of the universe? Is it air, fire, water and earth or, you know, uh, uh, the plants count? You know, it was so naive. It was earnest. It was, uh, it was you know, clever, but it was also naive. And I feel like we are at that mode now. People are going to look back at us as if we are ignorant cavemen and cavewomen struggling with really basic questions about the very nature of the reality we find ourselves in. What are the primary differences, you think, in uh, philosophy and science? Are they interchangeable? Do they share commonalities or are they distinct? I think there's a spectrum there. You know, there are lots of questions which are scientific and some questions which are philosophical, but a lot of questions have both components to them. You know, uh, what does it mean to be a measurement, for example? Is that a philosophical question or is it a science question? I'm not sure. Some things are very clearly science, you know, like I can smash two particles together and I can predict what's going to happen and I can write down rules and I can test those very, very precisely. That's clearly scientific. Then there are philosophical questions, you know, questions like, does the universe out there actually exist? Am I probing something which is real? Are the structures of the ideas I have actually related to the structures of the real universe? Mm -hmm. Or am I just playing games in my head and I have no idea if the universe is real or not? That, those that's are, a, that's those a good are... point. If I, could <laughs> if I could interject here. Yeah. Um, uh, you, what you just said, which is, are these games in my mind or are they things that, that, that exist outside of me? You know, with mathematics, you know, we look at math, it's really an abstraction mm -hmm. layer so we can interface with the world and we can understand it. Do these things, these abstraction layers, really have meaning outside of our own interpretation of them? In other words, do we give things meaning? Who knows, right? I mean, you could say that all of these things are generated by the process of human thought. They're the answers to human questions. And so maybe they're just like elements of the story we try to tell ourselves about how the universe works, which comes out of our desperate attempt to understand this weird world we find ourselves in as we sort of emerge as conscious beings on the plains of the savannah trying to survive. It doesn't mean that they're universal, right? Another way to ask the question is like, say we meet aliens, uh, what laws of physics have they discovered? Have they found the same laws? Do they have a completely different framework for understanding the universe in a way that's like untranslatable? Or 
have they found basically the same rules, which means that we're all actually uncovering real truths about an actual physical universe. And frankly, that's one reason why I'm excited to meet aliens, because I got lots of physics questions for them, and I desperately want to know the answer to that. In the same way that, like, you might be curious about um, meeting aliens because you have biology questions. You're wondering, like, do all intelligent species have eyes? Do they use radios to communicate? All these things we don't know the answer to because we only have one example of our civilization and our biology. You know, and my wife is a biochemist and she wonders, like, do all do all living things need oxygen? Or can you make a silicon-based question about biology? You can ask the same questions about physics. Like, does every intelligent being discover radio emissions? And do they think mathematically? Are whole numbers fundamental? Or is that an invention of ours because of the shapes of our fingers tend to make us think in, in you know, in those kinds of units? The truth is we are just speculating because we're totally ignorant. Uh, we have one example of the way that biology works, one example of the way that uh, that science works, that physics has developed. And so until we get another one, we won't know if we are unusual or if we're just like, you know, figuring out the same stuff as everybody else. So I really don't know, but I'm desperate to find out. Like what you said earlier, story everyone loves storytelling. I think storytelling is a, it's a very primitive thing that's a vestige from the past, whereas our, our ancient caveman ancestors would gather around a fire and talk about the saber-toothed tiger that almost killed me or you, and, and we you know, uh, share information on how to kill it or evade it uh, on our next hunt the next day. And I think it's pretty smart to use that uh, ancient uh, primitive um, mechanism to transmit the message of physics to advance uh, humanity. Oh, thanks. That's nice of you to say. Um, there's lots of great science communicators out there. Uh, for example, I'm a huge fan of Carlo Rovelli. Um, he writes really incredible books, very accessible. It's a bit higher level than what we're aiming for, more maybe the science enthusiast, but it's it's poetry. You know, he really captures the story of physics, the story of the universe uh, in words that I, that I wouldn't have found. Um, and there are other folks out there who try to communicate science or at least technological topics in a combination of prose and cartoons. Um, the guy behind XKCD, Randall Monroe, uh, he wrote a couple of great books. Uh, one of them is called What If, where he explores hypothetical scenarios and it's a nice combination of science and you know, really cool drawings. Um, there's a Zach Wienersmith and Kelly Wienersmith. He's the guy behind Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, another great webcomic. They have a book called Soonish, which is all about future technology and how it might develop. And they also have a nice combination of, uh, of cartoons and gags and also science. So I think it's a, it's a growing little niche, this combination of technical writing with cartoons and illustrations. And uh, I hope it grows more. It's a really fun area to work in. Yeah, I agree. I hope it really grows more. I think it's a very unique, unique and interesting way to communicate physics. Now, going back to what you said earlier about you, you know, you're desperate to beat an alien and to ask me questions. <laughs> do you think there's uh, there's aliens out there? Or what do you think the probability is, you know? Oh, man, somewhere between zero and 100%. I'm very confident. Um, That's a good answer. It, it's a difficult, difficult question to really say anything concrete about. But, you know, there's a really nice trend. Like, if you would ask somebody this question 50 years ago, they would have said, well, let's think about how many stars there are in the universe. And then let's think about how many planets there are around those stars. And then let's think about how many of those planets might be in the right place for life. And then the chances for life to form and the chances for intelligent life to form. It's this product of probabilities, right? To get life to be a reasonably 
common thing in the universe, you need all of those numbers to be not zero and above a very, very small number. And 50 or 100 years ago, we didn't know the answer to any of those things. Um, you know, we didn't had no idea how many, um, you know, kinds of planets there were out there. And now we do. Now we have learned so much. You know, we know that there are 200 billion stars in every galaxy and trillions of galaxies. So you start with a really large number. And, you know, about 25 years ago, we started being able to detect planets around other stars. Until 1995 or so, the only planet we had ever seen was a planet around our star. We didn't know if our star was totally unusual. Now, of course, we know most stars have planets, and something like 20 to 30% of them have Earth-like planets, rocky planets in a zone where water can be liquid on the surface. So that's like 20% of you know 200 billion planets just in our galaxy. It's a big, big number. Now, where we are now is we don't know what the next one is. What is the chances of an Earth-like planet with liquid water on the surface having life on it? We just don't know. Is that one in a gazillion and we are the only ones in the universe? Or is it one in four, in which case there's life everywhere? Um, and the incredible thing is that either answer is mind-blowing, right? If we are the only life in the universe, oh my gosh, that is incredible. What a universe to understand. Uh, if we're not, oh my gosh, what an incredible universe to explore and, and great things to learn. So I love these science questions where no matter what the answer is, it's awesome and mind-blowing. And the thing that's most exciting to me is that there are still chances to discover life in our solar system, right? I think a lot of people have the sense that, uh, that we've ruled that out, that if life exists out there, it has to be far, far away. But we don't know. There might be life under these frozen crust of Europa, or you know, there might still be life underground in Mars. There's liquid water underground in lakes in Mars. So there could still be life in our solar system. You don't need to invent warp drives to go and see it. Um, probably not intelligent aliens, probably not, you know, um, octopi swimming in the oceans uh, uh, in Europa, but maybe life out there. So I think there's a real chance we could discover something really incredible that would change completely our perspective uh, on how frequent life exists in the universe fairly soon. Um, but I think really your question is, are there intelligent technological aliens in the galaxy? That question, boy, man, it's, it's shocking to me that we don't know the answer to that question, that we live in one universe where either we do or do not have intelligent neighbors and we don't know the answer. Um, I just really don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's impossible to speculate, really. I mean, what do you think about the, um, the, these recent revelations and uh, videos of Navy pilots releasing footage where it, it seems to show objects are doing certain things? Is mm -hmm. that kind of stuff convincing to you, or are you just more like, well, well, we'll kind of wait and see? Well, let me say that I want to believe, right? When I see this stuff, I'm excited. I say, oh, please, please, please let it be alien. Uh, you know, when I heard Bob Lazar's story about Area 51 or whatever, I wanted to believe that that was true. So I come at this thing with an open mind and an open heart. Um, but I also have a high bar to, to believe that this really is something. And uh, on our podcast, which is Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, very recently just interviewed Mick West, who's a, an expert in understanding these videos. And he walked us through every video, and in every video, you can find a very reasonable alternative explanation for why this is not some crazy ship that can do things. You know, and the explanations are like, oh, it's a trick of perspective. So 
this thing which looks like it's zooming over the water at 800 miles per hour is actually just closer than you think. And so it looks like it's moving fast over the water, but it's moving slow in the foreground. Or this thing, which looks like it's changing directions really fast, that's just because the camera flips over automatically when the jet is turning and uh, not evidence of anything interesting. We don't know what is on those videos. They could be like escaped helium balloons from gender reveal parties. Um, they could be weird drones from other governments or from our government, but they're not doing anything amazing. Whether or not they're UFOs or aliens, I mean, they're definitely UFOs, but whether or not they're aliens is, is a separate question, but they're not anything really that incredible, which is unfortunate. I was really hoping to see something convincing. Um, I'm looking forward to them landing on the White House lawn. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, Bob Lazar, and, um, you know, it's a very convincing testimony he gives in, in, in various videos, uh, particularly particularly when he talks about element 115. What do you know about that? Is that a, an element that at the at the time when, when he experienced the stuff wasn't known to the public and now is? Is there any credibility to that? Yeah, so Bob Lazar does tell a very good story. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, that's all it is. He has a really good story. There is no physical evidence. There's no hard proof. There's nothing he can point to other than his very compelling story. And like, I read a lot of compelling stories. It's usually packed with science fiction, um, but a compelling story is not sufficient evidence. And he talks about element 115 as this mechanism for generating anti-gravity. And you know, it's true that the higher, um, higher, um, it's true that the higher atomic number elements are difficult to fabricate and that later some of these were made in the laboratory but I don't think he had any concrete, specific knowledge about this, this which would like reveal having learned secrets from alien physics uh, in advance of human science. So I don't really find any of that very compelling, which again is disappointing because I wanted to believe it. I right. mean, I grew up in Los Alamos. I'm from that area. Boy, that would have been fun. Um, yeah. But no, yeah. but no, I think we need to pay the respect to the importance of this question by being skeptical. And so then, you know, you might ask also like, well, what is the bar then? When wouldn't you believe? And I think we need some physical evidence, something that like independent scientists can probe and ask questions about, uh, some sort of thing which is clearly not built with human technology, uh, you know, or actual living aliens uh, coming and speaking to us or shooting death rays at us even. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned we should pay respects to the story by being skeptical. And I agree with you 100%. a really great way of putting it now. What do you think about the, the term that some use recently, especially, uh, mm -hmm. like the term believe in science or I believe in science mm -hmm. or trust science? Are these, are these kind of troublesome terms uh, more, more reminiscent of some sort of religion or, or, is, or is that something that, that should be encouraged, the idea that you should believe in science? Well, yeah, there's a lot of different things to unpack there. You know, one is a political question. Sometimes, especially in the days of pandemic, for example, there are difficult political decisions to make, and science should be included in that conversation. Um, you know, some people think that uh, all scientists think that scientists should be in charge. I think that science should inform those decisions, but uh, it doesn't necessarily need to dictate them. You know, these are political decisions that sometimes you have to make to balance competing interests and competing and really, really hard, hard sacrifices that different groups might have to make. It's really vital that the people making those decisions have the clearest, most up-to-date, best understanding of the science 
because it's going to inform their decisions. It doesn't mean that we need a person with a PhD to make those decisions. So I think that science should be respected and it should inform the decisions. Um, you know, to believe in science, it suggests that like there's an option um, that we could say, no, that I just don't like that. And so I'm not going to use that information to make decisions. To me, I'm all about accepting information. I think we make the best decisions when we're best informed. And science is our true and tested way to learn about the universe. Think about all of the things that it's taught us about the universe. It's incredible that we have this mechanism by which we can like go down into the minds of truth and reveal nuggets about the universe, which we can then use to our advantage to manipulate physical reality and control uh, the way things work to our advantage and sometimes to our detriment. So it's very powerful and uh, very useful, but it should be, you know, used with care. And it, uh, I wouldn't want to be a politician making those difficult decisions. You know, yeah. I grew up, I grew up in Los Alamos, and uh, you know, that's the home of the nuclear weapons lab where the Manhattan Project happened, and where they developed nuclear weapons, which were then dropped on innocent people, slaughtering hundreds of thousands of civilians. And to me, that's a terrible emotional burden for those people who worked on that. And that's yeah. one reason why I chose a field of physics that has almost no practical applications at all, because I didn't want to anybody to use my research to kill people or terrorize people in any way. I agree with you 100% that science should be respected. I want to put a finer point on the, the verbiage, the language that's used around science today, especially. I believe in science. Trust the science. I mean, it's, science is a methodology that you don't have to believe and you don't have to trust because the results are true. And the results disqualify or qualify uh, a prediction uh, while conducting an experiment. And I think that's what I'm really talking about. Yeah, I think I agree with you 100%. Uh, science doesn't ask you to believe its conclusions. It asks exactly. you to use its techniques to continuously update our knowledge. And you right. know, science is the reason we have changed our minds about things. We decided that, oh, we're not the center of the universe, or oh, looks, looks like disease actually is spread by tiny, almost invisible microbes. Uh, that's been very useful that we've been able to change our minds. So I agree with you. We should continue to use this incredible technique to learn about the world, but we don't have to be frozen in our understanding of the facts. The work you do is very important, namely education, educating people on physics, science, and other things where they can make a lot more knowledgeable decisions on things concerning their lives. Now, in the age of information, why do you think there's a large cadre out there of people who believe the earth is flat? <laughs> why is that? <laughs> it's incredible to me uh, that people believe that. It really goes to show you something about human psychology, this desire to resist being told uh, how things are. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's a little bit of healthy skepticism there, like, how do I know this? Uh, and in history, there are times when well-established ideas have been overturned by people being skeptical and open-minded. I don't think that the Earth is flat or NASA didn't land on the moon comes from a place of skepticism and being open-minded, though. I think it comes from a place of stubbornness and a refusal to accept, like, um, you know, institutional authority. I think what we're seeing now is this, this scary degradation of institutional authority. We used to have like a common set of facts and people we trusted to sift through what has happened and tell us what really is going on in an unbiased way. Um, and uh, that's being degraded. And I think, and that's why I think there clearly are people who benefit 
from keeping the population confused and, uh, and ignorant. Uh, easier to control and manipulate if people don't really know what's going on and don't have ways to find out what really happened to make informed decisions. Then they can be ruled much more easily by fear and xenophobia and stuff like that. So I think there definitely are dark forces who benefit from an ignorant population. And that's not new, right? That's happened all through history. And so I think uh, science um, you know, pushes the other direction. It tries to give everybody tools to figure this stuff out um, on their own. Uh, but some people's minds are just more closed than others. They, they don't want to hear it. And unfortunately, it's become a little politicized. You know, people feel like, um, you know, what, what's Colbert's line? He says, uh, reality has a well-known liberal bias, right? <laughs> um, which tells you that sometimes the facts are unpleasant and uncomfortable and they point you in a certain direction, uh, but that's still just the facts. Um, I think that uh, I want to encourage everybody out there to think about their own personal questions because, you know, science is not just a bunch of people in lab coats and goggles asking questions about the universe. It's all of us being curious. And that's all science is. It's people who are curious about the universe and then followed that curiosity because they just had to know the answer to their personal question about the universe. So everybody's got their own personal questions about the universe, whether it's about how life begins or how the human mind works or you know how to write human languages or what the smallest particles are. And I just want to encourage everybody out there to follow those questions, to keep asking those questions, because that's what science is and that's what powers human progress and civilization and I think, frankly, the joy of living. So um, I feel really lucky that I get to do that for my job and I just want to encourage everybody to do it as much as you can. Dr. Daniel Whiteson. The book is called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe. Where can people find more information about you and the book? Uh, yeah, the book has a website. It's called universefaq.com, and you can find it everywhere. It's also available for sale on Amazon. Uh, if you just Google me, Daniel Whiteson, you can find our podcast, which is danielandjorge.com. Uh, we're out twice a week talking about big questions about the universe. And then our first book is available at wehavenoidea.com. And uh, Jorge and I also do a children's television show on PBS about curiosity. It's called Eleanor Wonders Why. And it's about a curious little bunny that sees things in the world she doesn't understand and has to figure it out. Uh, so that's been a really fun adventure. Daniel, it was really great having you. And uh, thanks for being on the show.